Yeah, so tonight I want to talk about, or try and talk about, um, what happens when we die. Um, it's quite perfectly straightforward. <laughs> but yeah, so I'll talk about that. So I thought I'd start again with um, a little story from my own experience, um, which illustrates, I think, something that, first of all, I really want to keep on sort of coming back to. Um, so I thought I'd start with talking about my father's death. My father died about 26 years ago now. Um, and as so often happens when you practice Buddhism, when you get involved in uh, the Dharma life, as it's called, um, one of the first things that a lot of people experience is you get closer to your parents, you feel closer to your parents. Um, I used to have quite a distant relationship with my father when I was younger. And coming along here, I was, you know, I was 25 when I first started coming along here. Almost from day one, I started to sort of actually try and be in, a, in better connection with my father. Um, stop trying to make him the father I wanted or thought I wanted and actually start to relate to him. Uh, so by the time he died, I felt very um, close to him and very actually very, I feel more and more like my father in, in many ways. And I was on a weekend retreat, uh, I was le- uh, co-leading a weekend retreat and um, in our old retreat centre in Suffolk before we've got the, the new one that um, uh, Andy Odin's going to be leading the retreat at. We, we used to have a retreat centre just down the road and uh, I got a phone, phone call halfway through, there's just this weekend retreat saying, look, you better come back straight away and trying to get back to this small town of Henley Arden where I came from, from uh, Suffolk proved to be enormously complicated and I remember ringing uh, my brother who was at home and one of my brothers um, from some far flung place that I was trying to get back from Peterborough I think somewhere like and uh, you know with the, the grimness of Peterborough Station I don't know, in, in October or whatever and um, my brother said he's just died. I remember my him bursting into tears, which is very, very unusual for my brother. Um, he, he said he's just this minute died. And there I was, standing on this station. Um, it's, very, it's a very particular feeling of... I don't know whether you've ever had that experience, but you feel like something massive is happening to you, but you don't know what it is. I'm afraid my response was to buy a packet of cigarettes, which is weird because I don't smoke. Um, <laughs> But it certainly makes you a bit fuzzy. Um, and uh, yeah, I went back, got, finally got the train, finally got picked up by one of my brothers and taken back to, um, my, you know, to, to, to where my father was. My father was dead in his bed in the lounge. Um, and uh, well, what, uh, the, the experience I wanted to sort of focus on was, you know, with my, my fam- whole, I got a very large family there. My whole family was around. Um, it was very sweet because uh, my little one of my little nephews, Tom, was only five or something, and um, you know, he was he didn't really realise that my father was dead. And you know, at one point, the undertakers came to take his body away, and you know, we sort of ushered him out whilst that happened. And he came back in and said, "Where's Granddad?" He's <laughs> like, "That's weird." He was here a minute ago. That's all, which you know, set my mother off and so. Um, anyway, I had a period of time where I um, just sat with my father, um, you know, after, after he was dead. And um, looking back on it from this distance, that period of time was like a blessed time. Yeah. Um, and it was blessed because um, it was a really strong experience of, of 
a direct experience of I didn't know what happened. Yeah. Um, we often say, well, we, nobody knows what happens when you die. And that's true. Nobody does know. I don't know and you don't know. And scientists don't know and biologists don't know and um, Buddhists don't know and um, Christians don't know. You name it, nobody knows. Yeah. Um, but usually underneath that idea that you don't know, basically you think you do, um, which is that you die, um, which the, you know, consciousness uh, is obliterated on the brick wall of death and you die and there's nothing after death. Yeah. Um, that is a view. It's a belief. It's a belief that is disguised as a fact. We're so used to that belief that we think it's true, ineluctably true, in the same way as Victorian Christians thought that God was ineluctably true. Um, 200 years ago, if you said you didn't believe in God, people think you were actually mad, um, that it was just so, so evidently true that not believing in him, um, you know, seemed a kind of madness. Um, and there's something can happen similarly today. If you start to question our, our basic assumption about death, which is basically based on a lack of evidence, um, or a, and a selective reading of evidence, um, people start to think, well, you're, you're just a bit woo-woo. And, you know, people can get more than a bit woo-woo, and sometimes even Buddhists are rather prone to that. Um, but in that experience, I had this very strong sense of, of really not knowing what had happened. All I definitely knew is I wouldn't be able to talk to him anymore. Um, I wouldn't be able to, you know, go back to my family house and say, hello, Dad, how you doing? You know, um, go to his shed. I mean, for, for ages, it just felt like he was spending longer than usual in the shed. <laughs> it took me a while to realise that he wasn't coming out of it. Um, but yes, it was like a, a very pure experience of just being with my father is weird. You, you can't even describe it, can you? You can't say just being with, you know, people even struggle about what do they say about somebody after they're dead? Do they say the body or his body, my father or his body? You know, you can't quite, de quite decide where to place the body. You can't, you don't know quite even how to address it. I always think of anyway, my father sitting there. All I really knew for certain is I couldn't talk to him again. Um, but I didn't know anything else, including I didn't know whether he had died in the usual way I assumed it. And it wasn't because of, well, it didn't seem particularly because of my Buddhist practice. I hope it was. Um, but it, it wasn't a theory I had. I didn't bring to bear on that experience, um, ah, Buddhism, dot, dot, dot. It was just a direct experience that I actually didn't know what happened. And the experience of that experience was one of great purity. Um, I didn't sort of know anything for a while. And it, when you touch that, even the hem of that, and I'm sure I could have gone much deeper, it feels a kind of blessed state. It feels a kind of holy state even. Um, not in the usual sense of the word, but in the sense that it's, it's like illumined, but you don't know what by, you know. There was nothing I could say about it. Um, I think, in, 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 from a Buddhist point of view, you to use to sort of then put a Buddhist lens over that is that would be. An, I think that's the nearest experience I've ever got to no view, and the, and, and and that comes from a Buddhist teaching that you've got wrong, what he, what the Buddha called wrong view. Um, the word is usually 
andrishti, which means literally sight or view. You know, you can see things wrongly, you can see things rightly, and you can have no view. Yeah, you can. There's another way above and beyond even a right view, but which is no view. Yeah, and the Buddha was said to have no view yeah? about anything, about you, about the world. In, in, and what that seems to mean is he didn't have any pre-cooked theory or um, a pattern to bring to things. He just brought he just brought his whole experience to experience without having any pre-conscious assumptions about you, about himself, about the world. He was just completely open to what there was with no view. Um, so, so yes, Buddhism teaches what's called wrong view, uh, right view and no view, um, which is striking because most religious teachings say, here's the right view. They don't have a no view. But Buddhism is very clear, it has a, a path from wrong view to right view to no view. Yeah. So a Buddhist wrong view would be that when you die, that's at the end. The Buddha was very clear that that's a wrong view. By wrong view, he means... View, view is a bit confusing in a way because it sounds like a wrong opinion or a wrong idea or a wrong theory. It's more like your pre-conscious assumption is wrong. And that pre-conscious assumption, to use that language, slightly ornate language, is shaping your experience. If you think that when you die, that's at the end and there's nothing, and there's no way of communicating with the dead and the dead, are, you know, the, the dead body is just like, I don't know, a broken clock that you can just throw away. Um, if you think like that, that, yes, that is how the world will appear to you. Your views, um, your views edit your experience. It's not that you've got experience with views in them. You've got views with experience in them. Yeah. So if you think that life is bounded by death and at death you're obliterated and there's nothing of you that continues in any shape or form, what that does is it presents the world to you in that way and it'll, it'll create behaviour that suits that way of thinking. Yeah? Um, it literally edits your experience, it gives you your experience. Yeah? Um, for instance, for, for, for some people it gives a sort of weird, smug uh, belief that we know better than people in previous times. You know, we've kind of got it sorted. People in the old days, people thought you could talk to the dead. They thought you could pray to God. They thought we're like much more sussed. Um, that's that's a smug modern view, um, which, which is actually a result of a wrong view. Yeah, and wrong. So what wrong views aren't just to do with wrong thinking. They create a kind of distorted behaviour. Yeah, that actually closes life down to you rather than opens it up. Yeah. So the Buddha was really clear that when you die, the idea that that is the end, that nothing continues, um, is wrong. Yeah. In, and wrong means unhelpful, uh, inaccurate, not truly uh, a picture of reality, but also it, unhelpful to the whole of your life's flourishing. Your life will be diminished by that view, will be restricted by that view. Yeah. Um, Remember, he's still got this idea that you can then have a right view, which I'll come to, and then you can have a no view, which is beyond anything we can probably imagine. But So it, it's really important to remember that, you know, that first of all, we, we don't know what happens when we die, but we think we do. And we take our common sense idea 
that the brain creates consciousness. So when the brain dies, you die. We think that is just true. If we were to really excavate our view, probably that is what we think, especially when it comes to, when it comes to the crunch, like when you start to, I don't know, if you, if you start to get ill or something, you're suddenly very, very frightened of that terrible dissolution. Yeah? You, you effectively think it's true, even if you don't know that you think it's true. Because you can have opinions on one level which are quite different from your actual view. Yeah. Um, so, if so, the Buddha says that the belief that your body you, you die and at the end that's the at the end is a wrong view and helpful will limit your life um, is inaccurate. He also said that the idea that you go on forever in some way. You have an immortal soul that goes to heaven, which is what I was brought up on, or you are reborn, literally as the same, you know, you yourself are reincarnated again and again and again, um, that there's a part of you now that's essentially you, that, you know, isn't Dave or Julia or Mar Marjorie, but it's somehow essentially you and will carry on and become essentially a, a you next life. He would say that's not true as well. He said that there was an Another truth, and hopefully I'll try and get to that other truth by the end of this little presentation. Yeah. But there's another way of seeing that. Beyond that binary, I particularly talked about this last week, of um, no continuum, nothing continues, and you continues. There's something beyond that, that binary that we, we get stuck in. And one of the ways into that is to explore near-death experiences which are becoming more common because more and more because of medical advances people are, more and more people are coming back from what would have not been uh, a death um, uh, just next month actually Jan of Archer for Nature of Mind is going to be uh, interviewing uh, Ibn Alexander who has had the most the most profound near-death experience I've ever heard of in fact there's somebody who's done a, a long study in America of near-death experiences and he said it's the most profound near-death experience he's ever heard of. Interestingly, uh, Ibn Alexander is a, a neuroscientist who had this most incredible near-death experience coming out of a coma that he was in for seven, seven days. They, you know, when he first got into the coma, they said he had a 10% chance of recovery. As the days went on, it went down to a 2% chance of recovery with the assumption he'd never be able to walk or talk or feed himself ever again. Uh, he's now jetting around the world giving talks about his experience of a near-death experience. He shouldn't really be alive. It, it's, it's medically not possible for him to be alive, uh, or at least not alive in the way he is. Um, anyway, so one of the things we've been doing in this um, uh, Nature of Mind um, project, and do, you know, do join that project, because you, you can then watch all these other previous films that we've done, We've done a whole series of conversations with people about the nature of mind. And we're going to be culminating this series of conversations with a retreat at the end of August uh, called Buddhism and the Big Questions, where we're going to be exploring these big questions more. Like I just in the interim between last week's talk and this week's talk, I've been talking to Jan of Archer, who's a wiser man than me and has just come back from a two and a half month retreat. And we were talking about rebirth just yesterday and uh, things that I, I, I said, I just still can't get my head around it. He was saying, well, I think it's quite straightforward. And we have this fantastic talk and I'll try and replicate some of it now. But he's going to talk more about that on the retreat. Um, anyway, I, um, I went off to interview Penny Satori 
um, Penny Story is the first person in the UK to do a long study. I think she did a five-year study of, of, of people who have near-death experiences. Um, quite a remarkable story because she, did it, she, did, she wasn't funded to do it. She, she's, a, she's a nurse in ITU. Um, she had these, these experiences of people. Uh, she started to have, the, I'll talk about this experience she had, and that made her want to study people in near-death experiences, and she did this five-year study. It was very striking, Nick and I, Nick, Nick and I working on the nature of mind. We drove off from Adishtana, the retreat center that we're going to be having this retreat. Um, drove off into to Cardiff, where she lives, to interview her. It's, I don't know, so for me, this has become emblematic of this whole exploration of the nature of mind. You know, there we were with our, our, our camera kit and our, you know, microphones and everything, and arrived at this very, very ordinary house in, um, in Cardiff. Uh, to talk to Penny Satori, who's, you know, a, a, a working-class Welsh woman, um, very ordinary woman. I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean, in the sense that she didn't seem at all fantastical or flaky or woo-woo or anything. Uh, she was just an everyday woman who was struck by something. In fact, when we went in, she was playing with her seven-year-old son, um, and we had to sort of demolish their lounge and put all the cameras up and... I said to her son, should we interview you? Um, he didn't seem massively keen. Um, um, but yeah, I, it was a very interesting... I mean, do look at the conversation, do watch the conversation. But um, there I was in this very ordinary house in Cardiff with this very ordinary woman, I mean, and I'm a very ordinary man, talking about effectively what happens when you die, or at least people who have as get as close to death as you can possibly get and come back. You know, people, you know, even Alexander is pretty near brain dead when he, in, in his coma. Um, uh, she did this five-year study. And one of the first things that struck me about it is that um, we, 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 we had come at something in common. So I used to be a nurse many, many years ago, and she, she was a nurse. And she had this experience. She said it all started for her where she was a trainee nurse. She went, she, she did the reporting in when, You've had a night shift. They, they do a reporting into the day shift. I remember it very well. You know, the night shift say what happened to the night, and the, the day shift say what what do we need to pick up on, and then you go into the day. Yeah. And I remember that scenario very well, sitting in having that handover from the night shift. And the one of the nurses said, um, "Oh, this guy, he's going to he'll be dead today because he spent all night talking to his dead mother. He keeps on talking to her, so he'll he'll be dead by lunchtime." I thought. And um, she was really struck by it and thought, is, is she kidding or something? Because um, everyone was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it was completely straightforward. And it really rung up. I remember, I can't actually remember instances, but I remember that sort of thing happening where a nurse would say, oh, yes, um, they'll, be, they'll, they'll, be dead, they'll probably die by lunchtime. You know, they've been talking to their relative or um, all sorts of things. There's, there's actually quite a lot of evidence for all sorts of things that happen running up to death, including seeing people, um, including uh, changes of temperature. It's not uncommon for watches to stop at the moment of death, all sorts of things, you know. And I remember as a nurse, all of that was very well known. You know, it was, there's a kind of law amongst nurses. You just sort of know that. You know there's a particular atmosphere, for instance, around death very often. You often know when someone's going to die. Um, 
And yeah, she was really struck by that. And I told her a story that, and she, because she's got this story where one thing, again, so it's that experience. And then she had this other experience of nursing somebody in ITCU and they, they were trying to keep this guy alive. And suddenly this man opened his eyes and looked at her. And um, she said it was like he was saying, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I want to die. Let me go. Leave me alone. Stop it. You know, uh, but really desperately, please leave me alone. You know, don't do anything else. I want to die. You know, I want to go. And I was struck by that because I had a, an experience when I was a young trainee nurse. Um, I, um, I was very, um, uh, ambi not ambitious, I was very... Um, yeah, I wanted the best to be, you know, I, I, whatever the words, I can't remember the words. Um, you know, I really wanted to do my best as a nurse. And I remember a patient coming in who was dying and they said, look, he'll, he'll be dead soon. Um, and I said, I want to go, and, can I go and sit with him? And I remember the nurse saying, look, we just haven't got enough staff to do that. You can't do that. But yeah, I was a trainee. I said, no, that's what I'm going to do. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what we studied at our nursing school. Um, and I remember sitting with this guy. I didn't know him. I'd never met him before. He, he was unconscious when he was admitted. And um, I was just sitting with him for a while and suddenly he opened his eyes and looked at me and I had this experience of him opening eyes and, and suddenly realising I'm about to die. Suddenly realising I'm about to die. And then he seemed to, in that same moment, realise that he hadn't lived. Yeah. And then he burst into tears, and I was like, there. He burst into tears and then died. Um, and when I've tried to tell that story before, people have said, oh, that's your judgment of it. And I've not been able to communicate it, that it wasn't that I was, that's not what I thought about it. I seemed to know that. And, she, and Penny had had the similar experience with this person who said, leave me alone. She said it was like they swapped places. It was like suddenly she was in his mind and knew what he was thinking. It's quite particular. And in this ex example, it was how I've never had quite an experience like that. It was like I was inside his mind, seeing his mind, realizing I'm about to die because I haven't lived. The absolute tragedy of that. Um, that it's now too late, uh, and now and then he died. Yeah, and it, after all this time, it's the only person I've been, been able to talk to about that because people tend to think that you're putting yourself on the experience, and of course you can do that. But I knew at the time, and I still know that I wasn't doing that. Yeah. Um, interesting. My own teacher, uh, Bhante Sangrachi, he, he thinks that communication has much more of an element of telepathy in it than we realise. He re he thinks that communication often tips into that without you realizing it. Um, he, he thinks that's pretty straightforward, you know. Um, so then we got talking about her study of people who had near-death experiences. Another thing I really like about Penny is that she won't be sure. She said, when I went to this study, I wanted, to, I wanted answers. You know, I went to this five-year study. She funded it herself. She was working in her. She's a young mother. You know, I wanted answers. She said, I actually came out at the end with more questions. Um, I, I, I admire that. I liked, her. she said that we need to ask better questions. We need to look at the evidence better. We need to study things more rather than 
here's what happens when you... She definitely wasn't saying, here's what happens when you die. Um, personally, I find any kind of claim of certainty, that, that, that's like a foul, you know. Um, that, that means you're not in the conversation anymore because you, you just can't get certainty. It's not possible, especially in, in matters like this. But almost in every matter, you can't possibly get certainty. So the drive to certainty is a kind of madness. Um, it should be sort of just ruled out of court immediately. Um, unfortunately, because we're human beings are so insecure, you have a great need for certainty, which is why religious extremism and political extremism are so popular, because it gives you, it makes you feel sort of safe in that certainty. But there's no such thing as certainty. Um, you can't find it. It doesn't exist in this world. Um, and, and Buddhism doesn't offer you certainty. Um, but so I really like the fact that she wouldn't be certain, she wouldn't know, she just wanted to keep answering questions, asking questions. But when you study near-death experiences, and, they, and since her, people have done much larger, especially in the US, done much larger studies into near-death experiences. And they often follow a common shape. Um, there's nearly always a life review. You, either your life flashes before you, or you, um, go, you, you meet a person who shows you the book of your life. There's very, that's a very, very common experience. Very, very commonly you can see what's happening to you from above. Um, that happens again and again. So for instance, one of the people that Penny studied um, said, oh yeah, I could see everything that's happening. I could see you were all in a panic. It's interesting, when I did this conversation, I had an email from a friend of mine who just had a heart attack. He said, the same, exactly the same happened to me. He said, I was in the ambulance Suddenly, I was above the ambulance, looking down on my body in the ambulance, and I could see that they were worrying, and I felt great compassion for them. I could see that the medics were suddenly panicking and trying to get me around, and I just felt really compassionate to them. Uh, and that's just a, a friend of mine who I know very well, and he wouldn't make that up. Um, anyway, this, this, it's very common to have experiences where you see your body from, up, from above. Um, and of course, they then try to do things like put things above where above and then ask somebody else they come back if they saw them and I thought well I wasn't particularly looking for some of the little yellow dots anyway you know I was kind of more interested in the fact that there I was dead <laughs> slightly more compelling um, but one patient said oh yes I, I saw it because, because when when I was dead somebody opened the curtains and they, this, this person they said and they, they were and they described them described a nurse that wasn't on duty when the patient was uh, when this patient was uh, conscious. They'd never seen this patient before, but described and said, oh yes, they came, didn't they? And they opened the curtains and they said something and all that was just true. Um, very difficult to explain that. Um, so they often have experiences of seeing the body from above. Uh, they often, for instance, know that they're dead. Um, then very, very often they have, very commonly across cultures, cultures slightly di are different. Uh, it seems to be that you experience things through the lens of your culture. So for instance, there's, a, there's, there's some stories uh, where uh, in, in Japan or in China where people have experiences that exactly follow Buddhist models, um, where you meet Abhidharma, for instance, uh, a Buddha of the West, which is what this figure is. Um, but you, you often then have, the, there's often this sense of moving towards a light up some sort of tunnel is pretty common. Interestingly, in the West, that seems to be easy, seems to be floating. Uh, in the East, it seems to be more arduous, generally. Nobody quite knows why, um, but pretty common thing. Very often when you're there, you meet people, usually uh, relatives. 
there's even been there was one study in which somebody met their relatives in this other world often like a heaven kind of world and um and there was a re an uncle there that uh, the person met in that experience and had died whilst they were in a coma. So they didn't know they were dead before they, were, before they met them. Um, very often they, those people then say, it's not, it's not time. There seems to always be this place where if you go any further, you won't be able to go back. Yeah? Uh, there seems to be this um, place where, where you can't go back. Yeah? Um, anymore. Uh, one um, patient that Penny talked about is um, a person who had the same experience, saw themselves above, went up this tunnel towards the light. The light is very bright but doesn't hurt your eyes. You're sort of drawn up to it. You've sort of met um, these relatives and one of them was her mother saying, what are you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. Get back down there. You know, goes actually cross with them saying you must go back and look after your children. You can't be up here. Um, <laughs> One of the most startling ones, which again, she was saying, look, there's just not enough study into this, was uh, one in which um, a, a, a man and his wife, and his, his wife was dying and his, their daughter, and they were holding the woman's hands, uh, her husband and her daughter, I think that's right. And um, all of them, well, the, the, the daughter and the, the, um, the husband, suddenly experienced themselves as going up a tunnel with their wife, uh, with, with his wife, getting to this place with all these people and her carrying on and them coming back. And they had exact, the, the daughter and the, and the husband, when they talked about this experience, had exactly the same experience. Interestingly, the son was there as well, was not touching the body and didn't have the experience. Um, and again, Penny's just saying, I don't know what to make of this, but you can't explain it away, yeah? You can't explain it away. Gosh, look at the time. Anyway, um, so I don't know what to make of this. It's, I'll be very interested to hear what Ibn Alexander has to say because, you know, he's a, he was a neuroscientist who's had, as I said, the most profound near-death experience I've ever heard of and, and pretty much ever been written about, uh, which is pretty miraculous. Um, but it can't be explained away because he's alive, for one thing, um, and he really shouldn't be. Um, there's no reason to be. Um, but I asked her at the end of this conversation, so what, you know, what do you think? You know, we don't know, I don't know, you don't know. And for me, that's essential, that space of not knowing. Um, you know, what do you think? And she, she was saying, I think the most likely explanation is that consciousness precedes form. Yeah? That consciousness precedes form. That consciousness precedes matter, which, is weirdly exactly what Buddhism is saying. That Buddhism puts it, mind precedes world. And it's a very famous kind of Buddhist tag, that mind precedes world. That consciousness precedes form. Yeah? Or she said that it feels to her that consciousness is, a, is present and that brains are like um, a limiter valve, which again is inter interestingly what even Alexander then later said that he thought that the brain was like a limiter valve that permits or not more or less consciousness. And she was thinking, perhaps at death, it's sort of that valve relaxes a lot uh, and more consciousness comes in. Uh, I, we were also talking to Bernardo Castro, and he was using the example of LSD, 
don't try this at home, but um, LSD closes down your mind. It doesn't open it up. Um, but you have more consciousness from that. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a similar, you know, like people's experiences that their, their, their mind is actually closed down. It's almost dead. But actually their experiences, they have more consciousness, not less. Yeah. So when you start to loosen up this idea that consciousness is created by the brain, which is our common sense idea. Uh, there are all sorts of problems in that, and I'll hopefully talk about that more next week. One of the problems that Ian McGilchrist talks about, which we also interviewed and on this retreat that I'll be on and Jan of Arch will be on, will be showing two new films with Ian McGilchrist. We, he's a, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist and um, actually weirdly a literary don. Uh, I, I think one of the most important thinkers at the moment we'll be showing two new interviews with him that I did and Jan of Archer did. Um, but he, he, you know, that he's saying that to, to, if you think that consciousness was created by matter, you're basically saying that consciousness is a miracle. Because how can something utterly unlike matter be created by matter? He was saying that it must be somehow, his explanation would be that there is something in consciousness, with matter, which is conscious, or like consciousness, which can give rise to consciousness. Otherwise, he's, he's, he was saying it's a bit like rhubarb giving rise to algebra. How could something completely unlike rhubarb, algebra, come out of rhubarb? You know, how is that going to happen? There must be something in matter which can give rise to consciousness. So Penny was saying, I think that consciousness is here all the time and that brains kind of protect us from it, that we couldn't live with too much of it and that some people at the moments of death that protection as it were or that limitation is opened um, and that you experience consciousness uh, in its fullest sense or a much fuller sense yeah. so I want to just finish with this large thought um, if I can um, I don't know what to make of these stories it's only fairly recent that I've explored near-death experiences and I don't want to be certain about them. There could be other explanations. Uh, Bernardo Castro, for instance, he thinks that it could be actually to do with the moment where consciousness gets turned back on again. You can't, because it's a timeless experience, you can't necessarily tell. So that's one of his questions about it. I, I don't know, you, you can't know. Um, but I always want to come back to what, 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 what could be the case. I think, I, I think this idea that brain creates consciousness is very, very problematic. And actually, more and more modern thinkers are, are saying it's extremely problematic. It creates the hard problem of how does something utterly unlike matter arise from matter. Ian McGilchrist says, you only, you've only ever known matter through consciousness. That you've never known anything called ma matter is a construct. You've only ever known it through consciousness. Um, we talk about matter as if we know it exists out there without a consciousness. But we've only ever known matter through consciousness. Um, Buddhism, as I said, says that mind precedes world. And it's got this teaching of rebirth. And I want to try and finish with that, which is, and then we'll do another little meditation, we'll go a bit over time, but go a little meditation just to bring us back, um, I think. Um, but yes, I was saying yesterday that, that the, the Buddhist not yesterday, last week, the Buddhist, and you can catch up on it on YouTube, but the Buddhist picture of it is that you've, 
one life is like a fire made out of all these logs and then just before it goes out um, a spark jumps from that fire into another set of logs lights another fire yeah so you see Buddhism says there is continuance but no thing continues that's a that's a sort of philosophic point of view there is continuance but no thing continues yeah so different firewood different fire but something can something that's problematic already to say something but there is continuance you could do try quite to be quite strict there's continuance but no thing continues um, so that it's not reincarnation which is saying that there's a thing now a Maitreya Bandhu or a, a Jay or whoever um, there's a thing now in Ariane and that's going to be reborn as somebody else so that Buddhism doesn't believe that sometimes people think it does but it doesn't um, but there's continuance and no thing continues so talking to Yana Vajra about it perhaps it's like this perhaps who knows I don't know um, that what I am, what you are, what we mean by mind, is really a whole, a whole um, patterning of um, forces, drives, instincts, intuitions, wills, um, much of it lying deep below consciousness. Um, that's why this language of consciousness is problematic as well. That we're a kind of... Um, yeah, we're, 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 we're a manifestation. Um, we're a particular kind of creature in the world. Um, and that something of that goes, continues. Um, and that you, that jumps. I haven't got time, enough time to go into this enough because there's much more to it than this. But perhaps that, basically what you're doing, what you're, what you're deeply doing, are you, for instance, trying to be more aware and awake and alive and compassionate and loving and courageous and honest? Or are you really deeply on without even perhaps even knowing it, trying to just get your way, trying to manipulate things, trying to have what you want and don't want what you have want? That whatever you're really doing, that kind of impetus, that is that spark jumps across into a new set of conditions, which is a new body in a new environment, yeah. And of course, that new set of conditions and new environment conditions that spark, and that but that spark also conditions that new environment. For instance, it might, might, underline might, help to explain why siblings can be so different. Um, that there, there, might, there might be something that we don't know in that structure that we don't know about, that perhaps from a previous life. But what I wanted to end with is this, is this, is this, ancient Tibetan idea which I've always rather dismissed frankly which is that you that you choose your parents yeah um, that's the tradition uh, ancient Buddhist Tibetan Buddhist idea that you choose your parents uh, that in fact uh, you, you sort of see them having sex and you jump between them <laughs> weirdly it's all a bit Freudian but you somehow <laughs> what would Freud make of that um, that you somehow choose your parents I've always thought mm, it's not <laughs> don't like the sound of that. Um, but what that might be a metaphor for saying is that you are driven to continue in the way you've been continuing. So if you've led a life which is very brutal and harsh, you'll tend to, con you'll be attracted to that world. Yeah? 
just as we are now attracted to a world that suits us in a certain sort of way, uh, you'll be attracted to that world. Um, and that perhaps, and, and the Buddhist tradition would say, if you practice and if you develop your mind, you're not so driven in that way. You don't have to, and it's, you're not so driven in that way in your life now and in your future lives, to use that language. At, in my own experience, as I've grown to, to the degree I have grown, it feels like there's more at play. I do still very strongly feel my old habits and tendencies and patterns, and some of them are very, very deep indeed. You know that experience where you feel like, here I am again. You know, how come I've chosen this other girl or this other career and ended up exactly the same place where, where I got with the last girl, the last girl and the last girl and the last career and the last career. How come I keep doing that? This, you know that experience where you, you feel like, here I am again. So I definitely experience that in myself. I keep coming up to patternings, which, golly, at the age of 61, you'd think I would have <laughs> got further away from. But also I experience my life as having more at play, that actually I'm not just governed by that anymore. And in, a, in traditional Buddhist thought, that means that that can keep on developing until the point you can choose your rebirth. You can actually jump into the best set of conditions for your rebirth. I think that language of cho choice is a bit dubious, but I think what it's getting at is that in life, as in death, there's be more at play. There'll be more potentials. You won't have to be just driven to repeat yourself like you are in this life. And that perhaps lives are like a repetitive cycle for many of us, where we won't learn our lessons. But the idea of this Tibetan idea is also about the life you've got is exactly the life you need to learn. That what you're here for is to learn. They did a study on people with near-death experiences and what did they learn from them. And they said they learned two things, that the meaning of life was to love other people and the meaning of life was to learn. Yeah. And a, a lot of people have had those experiences and said that the whole point of being here is that your life is exactly suited to what you need to learn. Yeah. So let's just close our eyes for a moment and finish in that space rather than finish too speculatively because Buddhism's not very keen on speculation because that can get you into all sorts of problems.